Life is full of choices. And most of us like to make the best choices that we can, especially about the things that matter most. We might spend hours, maybe you did this in the run-up to Christmas um, or other times of year, hours poring over website reviews, or if you're old school, perhaps you still get the Witch magazine, finding maybe a new washing machine or a new vacuum cleaner or whatever the item might be. But of course, if we don't choose the best washing machine or the best vacuum cleaner, it won't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Some choices do matter more, though, like who to marry, what job to take, where to live, which house to buy. There are much bigger decisions in life upon which far more rides on us choosing the best we can. The letter to the Hebrews was written to help its readers make the most important choice of all. The letter is, if I can say this, like a divine copy of Witch magazine. It's like the ultimate consumer review website. And what it intends to show us as its readers is that Jesus is better than all the other options by far. That Jesus is, without a doubt, best of all. So why is that the focus of this letter? Just who is this letter from and who was it written to? The truth is we don't know, humanly speaking, who wrote this letter. Some say Paul, some say Barnabas, some say Apollos, but really nobody knows. We also don't know precisely who it was written to, but we do learn quite a lot about them as we read through it. For one thing, the author writes like his readers know the Old Testament really well. And along with a few other clues that we pick up along the way, it's it's very likely that they had a specifically Jewish background, that these were Jews who had come to faith in Christ, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. And the writer assumes in particular that they know the storyline of the first five books of the Bible really well, that they know all about Abraham and Moses and the Exodus and Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. If you weren't with us last year as we read through Genesis and Exodus together, one place to start out this month as you're reading Hebrews might be to revisit those two messages um, that we did on a Sunday morning to remind yourself of that early portion of the Bible. It also becomes clear throughout this letter that the original readers were being persecuted for their faith. Some of them had been arrested. Others of them had had their property confiscated. And some even had been imprisoned for following Christ. And as a result, some of them now are contemplating turning away from Jesus and going back to their Old Testament Judaism, which back then enjoyed still better protection under Roman law and less ridicule and less contempt from their neighbors. They're tempted to turn back from Christ to their old Jewish faith, to the old rituals and ceremonies and traditions. And this letter is one giant appeal to them not to do that. The writer recognizes the many difficulties that they're facing as Christians, but he wants them to know why Jesus is worth sticking with. He wants them to know why trusting and following Jesus is infinitely better than every other option. And so that's the overarching theme of this letter. 
that Jesus is better. That's it in a nutshell. Jesus is better. That's what Hebrews is about. And all of this is why Hebrews actually doesn't quite read like any other letter in the New Testament. It's actually more like a sermon. Or as the writer describes it himself uh, towards the end in chapter 13, verse 22, a word of exhortation. He's writing to exhort them to not turn aside from Jesus. Now, none of us here, I suspect, have recently been tempted to, to, to convert to Old Testament Judaism. But there might be numerous other things that do tempt us, in one way or another, to become diverted from trusting and treasuring Jesus. Especially, perhaps, when the Christian life gets tough for us. Especially when we experience opposition from the world around us for what we believe. We can be tempted to return to old habits and old ways of living. We can be tempted to water down our Christianity to to make it more politically correct and acceptable in our culture. We can be tempted to replace Jesus and our devotion to him with just a long list of worldly pleasures and pastimes and hobbies. We can find ourselves asking the question, is Jesus really worth it? Is he worth all the commitment? Is he worth all the challenges that following him brings? Is he even worth facing persecution for? Well, whatever our own particular temptations might be to turn aside, the answer we need to hear always remains the same. That Jesus is worth it. That Jesus is better And so we need the message of this letter just as much as the original readers did. We need to hear that exhortation again and again and again throughout our Christian lives. Jesus is better. So this morning we're going to do this, take this bird's eye view of the letter together before we go away and read it more closely for ourselves. Now the book is 13 chapters long and... Though it has just one main theme, I think you can split it into five main sections. Uh, Did I put these up? No, I haven't got these up on the screen, but we'll work through them one by one. The first four sections focus on four different ways that Jesus is better than all that's gone before. And in each of those four sections where he's showing us how Jesus is better, the author also draws his readers' attention to a particular danger that they face and which he wants to warn them to avoid at all costs. So that's the first four sections. And then in the fifth and final section, he gives this extended, passionate exhortation to them to simply persevere in their faith, to keep on treasuring and trusting and following Jesus. So that's the pattern that we're going to follow as we work through this now. In each of those first four sections, we'll see how Jesus is better, we'll take note of the specific warning he gives, And then we'll finish up with that that final exhortation to follow Jesus. So first of all then, what we discover in chapters 1 and 2 is that Jesus is the better word. Jesus is the better word. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Our God is a God who speaks. 
And throughout the Old Testament, he spoke at many times and in many ways through many different prophets. And it was a great privilege for the people to hear God's words to them. But now, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And the obvious point that's being made here is simply that this is better by far. God speaking through prophets was good. God speaking to us by his Son is now better by far. And then in verse 3, he explains why this is so much better. Jesus is better able than all the Old Testament prophets ever were, better able, in fact, than anybody else in all the world ever could be, at revealing the person and works of God to us. Because, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not a third-party teacher or a spokesman pointing away from himself. He alone can show us God by pointing to himself. As one writer puts it, Jesus is to God what the rays of light are to the sun. He's the exact picture of the Father. He is the Word made flesh, which means that he is immeasurably superior to Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha, to Isaiah and Jeremiah and to every other Old Testament prophet. If we want to know God and hear God, and enjoy a relationship with God for ourselves, the only place to go now, the only place that we ever need to go to find God's fullest revelation of himself is Jesus. That's what the writers of the Hebrews wants them to understand. And just in case they haven't got got the point yet, he also tells them that Jesus is superior to the angels from verse 4 right through the rest of chapter 1. Now, why does he do this? Why is he bringing up angels? Well, most likely because in the Jewish understanding, based on a verse in Deuteronomy 33, when God gave his word, his law at Mount Sinai, it was delivered to Moses by angels, which just emphasized the importance of this word. It emphasized the importance of the law. It was a divine message delivered by divine messengers. And therefore, it was meant to to capture the people's closest possible attention. And now here's the point Hebrews 1 is making. If the former words of God, delivered by prophets and angels, were essential listening for God's people, how much more should we pay attention to God's word that has now come to us, to his readers, through God's Son? Which brings us to the first warning in this letter. Warning number one is this. Don't ignore the message God has given us in Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, he says, in light of this, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? For this far better message was declared at first by the Lord himself 
And it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What he's doing is what we call an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the message that God gave to Moses via angels was reliable and resulted in judgment for those who ignored it, how much more trustworthy is the message God has now given us in his son? And how much more devastating will it be for us if we neglect such a great salvation? This, the original readers of this letter, we here this morning, ignore the message we have from Jesus at our peril. God is addressing each one of us here this morning through this letter. He's saying, do not ignore my son. Pay attention to him. Be sure you understand who he is. Be sure you understand what he has done. And be sure you understand the great salvation he has come to offer you. And then throughout the rest of chapter 2, he just goes on to explain just how good and glorious this salvation really is. While the consequences of ignoring his message are grave, the consequences of listening to God's message in Jesus are truly glorious. And the writer wants his listeners to be reminded of that, that Jesus is the better word, first of all. Secondly, he wants them to see that Jesus is the better Moses. This is chapters 3 and 4. Now Moses was, of course, one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, perhaps one of two, Abraham and Moses. Moses was the author of the first five books in the Old Testament. He was the one sent by God to lead Israel out of slavery. It was to Moses that God gave the law that formed his people into a nation. It was to Moses that God gave the plans for the tabernacle, the first real dwelling place of God on earth. Moses was a big deal to the Jewish people, and rightly so. It was right that they had previously given him their utmost attention. But now, someone even more important has arrived. The one to whom Moses and the Mosaic law were ultimately pointing. Now is the time, the author writes, to give your undivided attention to Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That word consider could be also translated behold or observe fully. He wants them to fix their thoughts now fully on Jesus, to make him the conscious object of their faith. For, verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. That repeated word house is just another word for God's household, God's people, God's church. And in verse 5, he tells them that Moses led God's people as a faithful servant in God's house. He was a, he was a worker inside God's house as one of God's people. But according to verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So quite simply, in Jesus, the owner and the master of the house has arrived. The time to follow Moses is over. 
the Savior, the Redeemer, the Builder of God's people has now come. We should lead the original readers to two important conclusions. Firstly, the time for going back to the old Mosaic law, going back to Judaism, is gone. It's all been fulfilled and superseded in Christ. To to go back to their old Jewish ways now, as tempting as it might look, would be to return to an empty shell. But secondly, the contrast between Moses and Jesus should also impress upon them just how important their faith in Jesus is really is. Most of those who followed Moses in the wilderness, the writer reminds us, going on chapter 3 and chapter 4, they actually failed, most of them, to enter the promised land. Why did they fail to enter? Because, he says, of their unbelief. These were the very same people who were there at the Exodus. They heard and saw all that God did to rescue them from Egypt. They actually heard God's voice, but they hardened their hearts to what he said. Chapter 3, verse 19, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They heard but didn't respond with faith and trust in God. And so most of them never entered God's rest in the promised land. Which brings us to the second warning in this letter. Warning number two is this. Don't respond to the message of Jesus with unbelief. Don't respond to the message of Jesus with unbelief. If Jesus is far better and worthy of more glory than Moses, how much more care should we take that we don't fall into that same trap that the people of Israel did as they followed Moses in the wilderness? So he says in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, now talking to his readers, talking to us, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We may have been hearing and listening to the gospel for many years. We, we might understand it in great detail and be able to explain it to, to others very well. We may have heeded the first warning of, of Hebrews and not ignored God's message through his son. But the second danger is that we'll hear it and hear it well, but still not ultimately believe it for ourselves. The writers of the Hebrews, you see, wants us to do much more than just hear it with our ears, this message of Jesus. He wants us to live our lives believing it with all our hearts. So we need to ask ourselves this morning and we need to ask ourselves as we read through Hebrews, do I really believe this gospel message? And have I responded to this message by putting my faith, my trust, my confidence in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins? We need to make sure that we don't miss out on God's gracious invitation that unbelief doesn't lead us to fall away from the living God. That's the second warning in the letter to the Hebrews. And at this point, just before we move on, let me, let me say a few more words about these warning passages in Hebrews because we don't want to read them wrongly. Nowhere in Hebrews does the writer ever teach 
that true believers can lose their salvation. That is simply not what this book is about. It is simply never mentioned anywhere throughout the scriptures. But what Hebrews does teach clearly is this, that true believers are those who put their trust in Jesus and who go on trusting him. As he says in 3 verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The warning passages are really not meant to lead us into fearfulness and panic, but they are meant to lead us to a sober assessment, to make us ask ourselves, have I personally trusted in Jesus? Or am I just a churchgoer? Is my hope actually in the person and work of Christ? Or is my knowledge of the gospel just head knowledge and nothing more? Now, if your heart is truly hard, these warning passages are meant to hit you hard, like an ice pick sent to break through your icy hardness to awaken you to real faith in Jesus, maybe for the very first time. But if your heart's already soft, if you're already a believer... God doesn't intend for these warnings to throw you into doubt and fear. His intention is that they'll, in fact, strengthen our trust in Jesus and reinforce our confidence in him. Which is why he follows this second warning with the most tender encouragement in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Look at those verses. Since then, he says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God wants to reassure reassure every believer here this morning through his word that Jesus understands our weaknesses. He knows firsthand what it is to be tempted and he invites us to confidently draw near to his throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our every time of need. Jesus really can be trusted, trusted with our very lives, trusted to keep us and help us. So have no fear this morning. We've seen that he's the better word. We've seen that he's the better Moses. Next in chapters 5 to 7, we learn that he, Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the better priest. At which point we might like to ask the question, why do we need a priest anyway? It's a good question. Why do we need a priest? Well, the answer begins in the Old Testament where under the Old Covenant, the priests were necessary because of the barrier of sin that existed between the people and God. The people's sin prevented them from drawing near to God for themselves. And so God appointed priests, and particularly a high priest, as the go-between, the mediator between man and God. And the long line of priests, beginning with Moses' brother Aaron, were called to represent Israel before God 
and to offer sacrifices for sin, chapter 5, verse 1. But, Hebrews tells us, there was a big problem. The priests that were appointed were just as flawed and sin-stained as the people they represented. And so they couldn't really present the people as perfect before God. Chapter 7, verse 11. God's people needed a better priest. And Jesus is that better priest. Jesus is the ultimate priest, the perfect great high priest. And the comparison that the author then paints in chapters 5 to 7 between the old priesthood on the one hand and Jesus' priesthood on the other reveals that the difference between them is just like night and day. It's like black and white. He tells us the former priests, and you'll see this as, we, as you read through it this month, the former priests were many in number, but Jesus is one. They were temporary. They kept dying and needing to be replaced. But he is permanent and eternal. They were sinners who had to, had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, but he was holy and innocent and only needed to offer a sacrifice for the sins of others. They had to offer sacrifices daily and weekly and yearly, but he offered his sacrifice once and for all time. They offered sacrificial animals, but he offered himself. They entered God's presence through a man-made tent, and by means of the blood of goats and calves, he entered the true heavenly tent, the heavenly holy of holies, the very presence of God, and he did it by means of his own blood. Consequently, chapter 7, verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The implicit third warning in this section is this, warning number three, don't reject the only one who can reconcile sinners to God. Don't reject the only one who can reconcile sinners to God. To reject Jesus is to reject the only true mediator between God and man. There is no other way in all the world by which we can be saved. No other religion, whether it's Old Testament Judaism or something else, no other religion, no amount of good works, no amount of lucky chances or hoping for the best can cover our sins and make us right with God. Only Jesus can, Hebrews tells us. On the flip side, though, this means that if by faith Jesus is our great high priest, we will never need anyone else to represent us in the presence of God. We, we don't need to pray to Mary or special saints or go through a priest or a pastor or a worship leader to speak with God and meet with God and enter into his presence. We, we don't even need to go through a, a better, scrubbed up, newer version of ourselves. Christ is our perfect mediator, our supreme high priest. Even with all of our sins and our failings, we can always draw near to God through him and know that we could not be more welcome in his presence because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father representing us 
and interceding on our behalf. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The author writes, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Jesus is the better word. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better priest. And fourthly, chapters 8 to 10, Jesus is the better sacrifice. Throughout chapters 8 to 10, the author shows how Jesus is also the, the better sacrifice. He explains how the better priest has also made a far better offering. And throughout these chapters, we have another compare and contrast. On the one hand, there are the Old Testament animal sacrifices, the, the blood of bulls and goats that were repeatedly offered in the temple. Sacrifices, the writer tells us, that really couldn't take away your sins, couldn't wash your conscience clean, couldn't make perfect those who drew near. Sacrifices that were, in fact, just a reminder of your sins and your guilt and your ongoing separation from God. And on the other hand, there's the sacrifice of Christ who according to chapter 9, verse 12, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There is simply no comparison. 9.26, he has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then chapter 10, 11 to 14, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is no comparison. The sacrifice of Jesus is infinitely better. All consciousness of sin stain, all guilt, all shame has forever been washed clean by his perfect sacrifice. So that New Testament believers can stand confident. We as Christians this morning can stand confident in the presence of God, not having to look over our shoulders and waiting for another priest and another sacrifice to make an offering for our new sins. We don't need to look anywhere else but to Jesus, who has done it all. His work is finished. His sacrifice is perfect and complete. Why would anyone go back? And so warning number four in the letters of the Hebrews is simply this. Don't walk away from the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. That's, see that particularly in chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. Don't walk away from the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Don't reject him. Don't rebel against him because without him, 1026, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There, there is nowhere else to go. There's no other path down which we can escape judgment and receive forgiveness. 
There's only one all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His name is Jesus. And all we need to do is continue to trust in him. Brothers and sisters, he says in chapter 10, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Don't shrink back, the writer says. Trust him. Hold fast and draw near. And then finally, in the fifth and final section, having, having just lifted Jesus up again and again as better, the better word, the better Moses, the better priest, the better sacrifice, finally in chapters 11 to 13, the author gives one more great exhortation to follow Jesus. That's the fifth section, simply follow Jesus. Chapters 11 to 13. Uh, actually, chapter 10 ends with the author recognizing in verse 36 that his readers, his listeners, are in need of endurance. He recognizes they're running out of breath spiritually. They need fresh wind in their sails. They need fuel for the race. And so beginning in chapter 11, he presents them with what many people have called the great hall of faith. After reminding them in 11 verse 1 of exactly what faith is, that it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He then presents for them, one by one, a procession of Old Testament characters, of Old Testament believers, who, though often flawed and weak themselves, persevered by faith. They kept on trusting God. Though they faced many hardships and temptations to turn away, they didn't throw in the towel they didn't walk away from God and his promises. Even though, he points out, they were looking forward to something that was never fully realized in their lifetime. They were looking forward to a new covenant yet to come. A better word, a better Moses, a better priest, a better sacrifice. They didn't receive it in their lifetimes, but now God has provided that better thing for us. End of, ch end of chapter 11. The better, he says, has come in Jesus. And so, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Set your eyes upon Jesus, he says. Lay aside everything that's going to make it difficult for you to run Every sin, every weight, every distraction, lay them aside and run with endurance. Don't give up. 
Don't let persecution discourage you. Don't grow weary. Don't resent God's fatherly discipline in your life. All of this is in chapter 12. And then in the second half of that chapter, he paints a contrasting picture for them again of the difference between the two covenants, the old and the new. And uh, unlike the Charles Dickens title, this is not a tale of two cities. You'll see it's a tale of two mountains. First, there's the old covenant, he says, represented by Mount Sinai, a mountain that could not be touched or approached, a terrifying vision of God's holiness that made the people around it beg that God not speak to them again. And then he says there is the new covenant in Christ's blood, represented by Mount Zion, a heavenly mountain. There now, with Jesus as our mediator, the experience of being in God's presence is, it could not be more different. It's a place of great joy and celebration, he says, as we see and worship him alongside the angels. And in 1228, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Finally, then, in chapter 13, he gives us some concrete, practical directions for how to actually live out this life of faith. How to live out this life of faith and worship and gratitude. The life that we're called to in trusting Jesus involves or leads to brotherly love, hospitality, honoring marriage, being content with what we have, doing good, sharing with others, submitting to leaders, and praying for the gospel to go forth. And we do all of this, not out of compulsion, but because we truly believe that Jesus is better. That he's better than anything else life could offer us. That he is better, in fact, than life itself. So let's, let's be asking ourselves, at the beginning of 2020, as we read through Hebrews together this month, do we really believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is better? The truth is, we all battle most of the time to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's a daily battle for every Christian to consistently live like Jesus is better. We're always falling down. But perhaps you find yourself at a particular low point at the start of 2020. Perhaps, truth be told, your faith in Christ and your devotion to him has been slowly but surely ebbing away over the last year or more. Perhaps you just feel like there's a multitude of pressures and distractions and temptations within and without, and you don't know how to turn the tide and return uh, to where you once were. If that's you this morning, the, the only thing that you need to do right now is this. Turn again to Jesus. Remember and confess that he is better. And remember those tender words of encouragement that God's already spoken in chapter 4. That we don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, with our coldness of heart. He was in every respect tempted as we are. Come then with confidence, Jesus says to you this morning. Draw near to the throne of grace today and you will receive mercy and find grace to help you in your present time of need. 
Be reassured this morning that God is for you. Be reassured through the pages of Hebrews. He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. So much so that we can confidently say, however weak we feel, the Lord is my helper. And now, closing verses of chapter 13. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.